Jesus is giving the life characteristics of those who are to be in his kingdom. Those in my kingdom look like this, chapters 5 and 7. And this map of prayer falls practically in the middle of this whole discourse. Chapter 6, in the middle of this discourse, Jesus talks about worship as an aspect of kingdom life. His children worship. So this map falls in the middle of his discourse on worship. You look at verses 1 through 4, he talks about giving to the needy as an act of worship. You look at verses 14, excuse me, verses 16 through 18, he talks about fasting as an act of worship. And then at the end of the chapter, verses um, 25 to the end, he talks about seeking first the kingdom. So it seems to me that Jesus has Prayer at the very center of worship. Give, pray, fast. Prayer is right there holding those two acts of worship together. Because prayer in itself is an act of worship. And it's to be the heart of our worship. See, for example, if we put prayer at the center of our worship, two benefits come out of it. The first is that prayer inspires my worship. My worship will become more authentic, more genuine as I am worshiping through prayer. It'll inspire things like giving to the needy. It'll inspire things like fasting. If I give to the needy without praying for the needy, I am doing nothing but just giving them stuff. I cannot care for the people I am not in prayer for. And so prayer inspires a true giving, not just of stuff, but of myself to the people, to the needy. So prayer there is inspiring the worship through giving. Prayer is inspiring fasting. What is fasting without prayer? It's nothing but a diet or anorexia. Truly, fasting is miserable if it's not coincided with prayer. So prayer is the inspiration of our worship. It inspires our worship. Second benefit, if we put prayer in the middle of our worship, it not only inspires our worship, but it retires our worry. And that Jesus brings out in verses 25 to the end of the chapter. And the key verse is verse 33, where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Before that, he said, don't worry. Don't worry. Birds, flowers, they're all good. God is covering them. He's providing for them. He will provide for you too. Therefore, let prayer be the center of your worship so that prayer prioritizes his kingdom over my needs. And then Jesus says, as a result, I will give you what you need. So prayer retires our worry. It says, your kingdom first. And then God says, now I can give you what you need. You're spiritually and physically provided for making us full, complete people. Thus prayer makes... Um, a powerful Christian is a praying Christian. And it's no wonder then that Satan wants desperately to keep us from praying. Do anything but pray. Give to the needy. Here, I'll give you truckloads of food, Satan would say. I'll, I'll give that to you for free. Give to the needy if that keeps you from praying. Fast, Christians, fast. Beat your flesh up as long as you don't pray. I may even go as far to say that Satan would rather you lead someone to Christ than that you pray. 
I would, I, if I'm saying, I would give, yeah, sure. You can save that one person, but you're not going to be a praying Christian, so you're going to miss out on all the others you could have saved if you were a praying Christian. That's a great trade for Satan. Let one go to heaven so that many others don't. Anything but prayer is Satan's mentality for us. Christian prayer is so natural for us. That's why Satan comes against it and it comes so hard for us. And we sometimes don't maybe necessarily grasp what we're doing. But prayer is as natural to the Christian as ammunition is to the soldier, as pen is to the writer, as music is to the musician. God's children pray. It's natural. Just like a wolf howls, it's natural. An owl hoots, it's natural. A bird chirps, it's natural. Christians pray, it's natural. So I think that's why it is important that we take a look at this map of prayer. And my goal for the remainder of our time is to familiarize ourselves with this map so that we can know how to follow the map so that we can go home and experience the destination of that map being paupers in front of our prince. So this is, in this prayer, Jesus shows us three things. He shows us first who we pray to. That's in verse 9. Then he shows us what we pray for. That's all the way through verse 13. And then subsequently, those two things considered, we will then learn why we pray. So who we pray to, what we pray for, and then why we pray. That's what this map, um, through my experience, I think is trying to show us about prayer. And it's all going to lead to one conclusion. That prayer is the praise of the prince through the pleadings of the pauper. Let me put that in another way. Prayer aims to glorify God through the humility of man. The glory of God through the humility of man. I believe that that's what Jesus wants us to learn through this prayer. His glory, my humility. And they go together. When I'm humble, he is glorified. We'll see that unfold. So first, the person of our prayer in 6-9. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. This is the person of our prayer. Two aspects here. He is our Father, the loving, gentle, tender lover of our souls. And he's also in heaven, the terrifying God who wiped out this world with a flood and will wipe out this world with fire. <laughs> this is a strange paradox, two truths clashing together, that this is the Father who holds our hearts and the God who holds the universe, both coinciding. That is who our Father in heaven, so loving yet so severe, so approachable yet so beyond us. So I love the Father part. Jesus says, praise our Father, not our judge, because there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Romans 8, 1. That's paid for. We don't come before a judge. We don't have to come terrified that he's going to slap us for something that we did. He's our father. He's going to embrace us. He also says, doesn't say, pray our taskmaster. As if when we come to him, Jesus is going to drive us to doing more works to make us more perfect so that we can finally be accepted. 
No, we are already righteous in Jesus. That's why we can say, our Father. As he also doesn't say, pray our creditor. As if by coming to Jesus, he's going to start saying, all right, this is what you owe me. This is what you haven't done. This is what you need to do. On the contrary, Ephesians 1.3 says that he has, past tense, given us all things in Christ Jesus. He's not a creditor that's going to be demanding from us. He's the blessed Father who wants to give to us. And the pauper needs to come receiving from the hand of the prince. So that's our Father. And it's quite a privilege. I mean, as we, as we pray Father, we realize how tenderly he loves, how freely he forgives, how jealously he pursues, and how severely he supports us. There for us every step of the way with great, great supporting love for us. He patiently watches us mature. He picks us up when we fall. That's our Father. And what a privilege to be able to come in prayer and say, Our Father, because not everybody has that privilege. Jesus told the Pharisees that they don't have that privilege. John 8, 44, he said, Your Father, so if you're going to pray, your Father is the devil. Because you've been lying like him and you're murderers like him. They can't pray, our Father, the one who's going to come love and support. But the children of God can. And the children of God look like their Father. Thus they can open and say, our Father in heaven. This is where the bigness of God comes. If we can come so approachably as such a loving God yet he's a God in heaven who's unapproachable, and he can just totally smash us to the dust if he wanted to. Yet that power is funneled in his love through Jesus for us. Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Our God is beyond finding out. He surpasses human knowledge. There is no limit to understanding who the God in the heaven is. Yet we know him as Father. So that's who we are praying to. And now we know who we are coming to. What in the world do we say at that point? Well, Jesus tells us how to pray. He gives us the petitions, verses 9 through 13. And they unfold in two parts. Three, petition, three petitions under each part. So that makes a total of six. One heading, three petitions. One heading, three petitions. And these are the two headings, and we'll look at the three petitions under each. Okay? The first heading is that we worship the glory of his preeminence. Preeminence means first in all things. He is the God in heaven. There's nothing that comes above him. There's nothing greater than him. So prayer is to worship his preeminence. And secondly, prayer is the confession of our dependence. So his preeminence is glorified, and then our dependence is then confessed. Those are the two parts. So let's look at the first part. Prayer is the worship of the glory of his preeminence. First petition that, that shows us the glory of his preeminence is in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
This is the praise of God. That's what hallowed be your name means. To hallow means to set apart, to sanctify, um, to glorify. So to hallow be your name means let there be no shame to your name, but only fame for your name. It's wanting the utmost glory and fame given to God. That's why we're worshiping his preeminence. God, hallowed be your name. There's no name above your name. And it's our desire as we come to you in prayer that nothing is glorified above you. You are the preeminent one. And we worship that. And we want the world to sing your fame, to know your praises. So the first petition is for the praise and glory of God. Hallowed be your name, not hollow be your name. To hallow is to magnify. To hollow is to take what's inside out, <laughs> to make it empty and meaningless. It's like biting into a ding-dong and asking, where's the cream filling? That was a commercial a while ago. Um, <laughs> so if we're going to pray, hallow be your name, it must start here. We're the first to hallow his name, and we can pray for that to grow out of us, and we pray for the church to hallow his name. We pray for the churches to hallow his name. Proverbs 25, 26 says, Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. In other words, the righteous man who stumbles and acts like a sinner before sinners is like a spring that is polluted and no one can drink out of. It's worthless. And when we claim to be the children of the glorious preeminent God and we act like everybody else, we're a muddied, polluted spring. See, our goal is not to hollow his name, it's to hallow his name. And so that's the prayer that God is glorified in all that we do. The second petition, the program of God. Verse 10, your kingdom come. His kingdom comes when his gospel rules over hearts. And we want to see his kingdom over all the earth. And it will come one day. And that's exciting to pray for. But right now, the church is here to build a kingdom for God. So to pray your kingdom come, the first step is my kingdom go. God, let your kingdom, let the prince come with his armies and subdue my kingdom. Lay me flat. Burn my city. Char to the ground. I'm no longer the king. This kingdom is your kingdom. So the prince, come. Bring your kingdom to my heart. To be in his kingdom is to be under his authority. The prince is my prince. I obey what he says. That's what it means to be in his kingdom. Lord, your kingdom come to my life. This is worshiping his preeminence, showing that he is such a glorious God, he's worth serving. He's worth burning our kingdom for. And as it starts there, we can start to pray your kingdom come elsewhere. This is where I like to pray for missionaries um, right now for Youth Call, for my sister's program, Ignite. Your kingdom come. They're out there bringing the kingdom to people. And so that's a good time to pray for God's glory through missionaries. God's glory through um, you at your workplace. That God's kingdom will come there. It's about worshiping his preeminence and seeing it spread all throughout our lives. And of course, his kingdom will come. And we want to be the ones building this kingdom so that when it comes, man, we're ready. 
And, and so praying for this big global kingdom of Christ, it makes us look past our pity problems. It makes us realize that as Christians, it's not about me. I'm part of a massive movement, the kingdom of God. And it, it ignites a fire in me to remember, it's not just my struggles. It's not just me, me, me. It's about him and his glory. So the third petition, the purpose of God, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if his kingdom comes in our life, there's going to be no problem for his will being done through our life. It's really a result. If we're praying for his glory, we're asking for his kingdom, you're going to do his will. Because there's no greater will for us than to submit to our king and to glorify his fame. That's God's will for us. So this is a great place to pray like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not as I will, but thy will, as the King James says. Not my will, but thy will. So that's the first step of prayer. It's the worship of his preeminence, the glory of that preeminence. Then with that said, knowing full well who we're before, God so magnified in our minds, we should be at a proper place by now. He's glorified through what we're praising him through. We're worshiping the glory of his preeminence. But now, he's going to be one step uh, further glorified. Does that make sense? We're going to glorify him one more step because now we come to the place where we confess the humility of our dependence Upon that preeminence. You see, God's not just preeminent. We're dependent upon that preeminence. And that takes it a step higher. It's not just, God, you're great, but it's, God, I need that greatness. And without my having your greatness in my life, I am absolute, I'm going to be wasted. I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to be nothing in my life. I need that preeminence. And it's when that preeminence comes and meets my dependence, that's when God looks even bigger because it's no longer about us and our power and our whatever. It's about him. So Jesus, look, we've worshipped the glory of his preeminence. Now it's time to confess the humility of our dependence. So here are the last three petitions. The first, pray for our provision. He says there in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now, I think you've noticed at this point that this is the first time the prayer addresses us at all. It's all been him, him, his kingdom, his glory, his name, his will. Now all of a sudden, with that laid aside, you glorious God, give us this day our daily bread because we can't get it anywhere else. You are the prince. We are the paupers. And so we are coming to you. See the humility here? We're coming to you for these needs. This is physical. This is spiritual. Whatever you want your daily bread to be, believe it fits into it yes at this time there's the physical bread's necessary it's harder for us to get the the necessary things in life with the economy and such so god we need you to provide because we're powerless on our own of spiritual needs i i pray for this is a good place for me to do intercessory prayer for people um you know like one pastor i know um he right now he's his back is messed up and he can't go to the doctor till the money's fronted up for him. And he has no insurance. And he can't work with his back. Wow, what a place to be in. 
the great place to humbly come before God. And it's like you're at the point where you admit, I literally can't do it, Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. And so the intercessory is important here because it's not just give me this day my daily bread. It's give us this day. And you're going to see that the last three petitions are all about us. Jesus wanted us to pray as a solidarity. In other words, as a group, as a church. We have needs. It's not just my needs. It's the church's needs. So we as a people, we have daily bread that we need. And if it's good for us, God will give it to us. Psalm 84.11 says that. So second petition under the confession, confession of our humility is for our pardon. So we pray for our provision and we pray for our pardon. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Or as many others have put it, essentially what this is saying is forgive us our sins. We've wronged God. Forgive us of that. And this is humility at work. Because listen, God knows our failures. He knows every single sin you've committed. I mean, it's not like you come before him and say, God, I'm sorry for that thought. Whoa, what? When did that happen? Oh, get out of my presence. He already knows it. And think of how much more perverse it is to come before him and not even just pretend it never happened. So it's not the confession asking for pardon is not because God needs to hear it. It's because we need to hear it. We need to hear coming from our own mouth, our own filth, and our own perversity. Because what it does is it puts Brandon, king of his universe, to the floor before the Almighty God and says, Yikes, I am at the mercy of the Almighty. Humility. I'm confessing my dependence upon his forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. I need it. So, and I've learned that as you are open and honest before God, John calls us walking in the light. That open doors of confession will close doors of transgression. When I open doors of confession, it closes doors of transgression. I don't want to go back and do those things again. I mean, yeah, I'm human and it happens, but I find my heart at a place because it's so open and humility. I almost said humilified, (laughs) humiliated before God, that you begin to look differently at your sin. You begin to hate it as God hates it. You begin to love the things that God loves. So we confess the humility of our dependence by asking for our provisions, for our pardon, and consequently, don't forget to look at the last part of that where it says forgive also those who wrong us. All right, if you can't forgive others, you don't know a thing about forgiveness from God. That's what Jesus says. All right, he, he expounds on that a little bit later in verse 14. He basically says, you have to forgive or you are not forgiven. It's a condition of receiving. It comes out. So a little side note there. If you're having trouble with people, it's human to not like people sometimes. So that's also part of the prayer. God, as you've forgiven me, help me to forgive them. I can't do it. I'm humble. <laughs> that's the point there. I need you to help me love them. So then the third petition for our purity. Verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the petition for our purity. Because confession not only regrets sin, like we just did in the last petition, forgive us, I'm sorry for it, but confession not only regrets sin, but it repents from sin. It, it just 
doesn't want to do it again. It turns the other way. And we have a proclivity for iniquity. It is the nature of my heart. It is bent for it. I am like a pig who desires the pen, the, the mud, the pigsty. That's what I am without Christ. It's what I am. And to let me go in my own power, I'm going to just run at the first chance of sin I have. My heart, as Jeremiah says, is desperately wicked. It beats for opportunities to please and gratify self and flesh and to build my kingdom. That's the nature of us. And apart from depending upon God's help for us, we will be there. Eating with sinners, joking with the wicked, hanging out with the iniquitous. We need his help. That's why lead us not into temptation. Lord, give me the grace today to cleave to your feet and never leave. This is exactly what David prayed in Psalm 1913. This is a great daily prayer. Psalm 1913. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Because, Lord, I feel my heart wanting to just do these sick things like jump off the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's just like this impulse. Just, what if I want to try that? I just want to, I just want that. Lord, hold me back, please. I don't want to go there. I want to stay with you and cling to your feet. So lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from this evil. Without your grace and help, I can't do it. So please hold my wicked heart back. And and when we come to that place and realize that our only hope is in Jesus, we're finding the source of our strength. We're no longer going to think it's a checklist of how not to sin. It's simply cleaving to Jesus. So it's that desperate cry. I I think that that last petition is the climax of the prayer. I, I think that that's where a lot of Christians don't realize this part. They don't realize their need for Jesus lest they do sin. They think it's all about them, just, oh, I'm really good. I'm just I'm really working hard at that sin. I'm learning more and more. It's all about I'm really receiving from Jesus what I need not to do that sin. And getting to that place where I realize, God, I, I, I don't know what to do, but just to confess the humility of my dependence upon your preeminence. And I learn more and more as I go through this prayer that I am the pauper, and he is the prince, and it's the only hope I have. So I think that that's what Jesus wants us to get out of this, the purpose of prayer. It has been said that prayer, simply put, is talking with God. Yes, it is that. But I feel like that definition of prayer falls far short of the mark. Just talking with God. I mean, I can talk about a lot of things. But does it glorify his preeminence? Does it confess my humility and my dependence? That's prayer. See, prayer burns for the ear of God with a fervent heart just flaming for his glory. It's just smoke. That's what prayer, it's just like the smoke coming out of a heart on fire for him. It's just, I need you, I need you, I need you, because you're glorious, glorious, glorious. It, it's also, prayer is also the hunter looking for the ear of God, and it takes his, his arrow of humility in the bow of prayer and just shoots it out to God's ear. 
God, I need you. That's what prayer is. It is pointed. It is purposeful. It is glorify you. Humilify me. So let's, in, in basically, in other words, the aim of prayer, as I have said, is the glory of God through the humility of Brandon. And so I give my three petitions worshiping his preeminence. And that glorifies him. And then I go one more step. And I dismantle my kingdom and, and confess the humility of my dependence. Not just that I'm dumb and useless, because that's depressing, but it's that I'm dumb and useless apart from his preeminence. That's what I'm depending on, and that's what makes me a person. Absolute need for God. So we pray to aim for the glory of God through the humility of man. That's how this prayer works as a unit. So we pray for God's glory, as we've seen, the three petitions. Lord, your praise your program, your purposes in my life, all for you. And then we learn to pray for our humility. And I just love it, how the three, these three petitions of our provision, um, our pardon, our purity, do glorify God. Because, I mean, when I pray for provision, what happens is God is glorified when I'm satisfied in him. Here's my need, he gives it, I'm satisfied, he's glorified because he's the giver. I didn't get it. He gave it. I received it in our pardon. God is glorified when I am justified in him. I'm forgiven, not because of something I did. That would glorify me, but because of something he gave me, and I received it. That glorifies him. And then the third petition, my purity, God is glorified when I am sanctified in him. Nothing glorifies God more than my purity. And when he works that in me, he's glorified. So that's how everything in this prayer, just the direct praise, praise him, and then the, this is what I need, it still glorifies him. Because when he meets it, and I receive it, he gets the glory. So, the prince and the pauper, that's what paupers do. They don't give, they receive and in their receiving, they are giving glory. But they don't come with their pennies and say, aren't I great for glorifying you? You can use this. They come with open arms and receive. They receive. They receive. And I understand the aspect of worship. We often talk, let's, let's not be so bent on what we get from God. Let's give to God. I mean, I understand that if, if the mentality is that we don't want to you know, satisfy our opinions and our flesh, but we want to give God glory, great. But you're going to give God more when you have the mentality of I'm receiving everything from God. I've said this before, that when it comes to needs, he has none and I have a ton. And when we get that straight and we are the recipients of Dr. Jesus helping us, Prince Jesus supplying for us, then he is ultimately glorified. We have a big God, and we need not diminish him. So to open this whole series off, I think that this is the appropriate prayer to look at. It's to understand what the prince and the pauper means. It means that God is glorified through my humility, through my dependence. So prayer aims for the glory of God through the humility of man.
And next week, we will look at a practical prayer model to help uh, alongside this one, which is a great one to start with. I, I pray this virtually every day. Um, another prayer model to help us when we get in ruts and um, just a good practical message on this is some good tips on how to pray. So we'll look at that next week. So Father, we are ready not to just rush and ramble in prayer. But Father, we desire your glory. And often we desire that without knowing what that means or how to get to that. So Father, we now, we just want to ask that your name is hallowed in this body. Father, that everything we do um, for the next couple Sunday mornings, every Sunday night, every Thursday night and Thursday morning, or everything that we do here would be to make you look better. God, we pray for your rule and your kingdom here, that we would be submissive to you. God, that it would spread, that you would use us to build your kingdom, that we would see people submitting themselves to your kingdom new and afresh every week. So, Father, teach us your will that we do it, your will to glorify you, to build your kingdom, how you want us to do that, how specifically for individuals. You've given us gifts, and we want those gifts to be used according to your will. So, Lord, also give us today all of our needs. There's, there's illnesses in here. Father, there are worries. God, take those worries away. Meet what we're worried about. Give us peace, Father. Lord, forgive us our sins and help us also to forgive those we're not forgiving, to love all people. Lord, those who are forgiven much, love much. And so make us feel afresh the severity of your forgiveness for us. Clean our hearts out, Lord. We ask that you hold us back from the sins our heart yearns for. We know that no good thing dwells within us, Paul said. And so, Lord, we ask for your strength to keep us away from the things our hearts beat for. Hold us tight, Father. As the song says, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. And Lord, let it not leave that place. Let that be where our hearts are. So we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. and grace to